Heavenly Father, what an opportunity that we have to open up the pages of your word and to know that you have revealed yourself to us in human history on how and what we needed to know about who you are. It's found there, how we are to live. It's found within its pages on what you're going to be doing to bring about human history to a climax. It is found there. For it is there to give us encouragement. It, it is there to give us a deeper understanding on what the flow of human history is. It is there for us to know that you are a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And even how this world, though it grows darker and darker, nothing is ever a surprise for you. And so we ask the that your spirit will come in to give us understanding. Though we come to a very familiar topic, it is something to where we need to really know where the lines and the sands are drawn for ourselves so that we can have a life in, uh, in which it brings you all the glory, it brings you all the honor that you rightly deserve. So speak to us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I had all intentions on picking up where I left off last time. It was Genesis chapter 37, where we saw Joseph. And we were looking at the beginning of the life of, of Joseph. And I was going to be jumping to the end to really underscore God's providential work with his people. Because it was through those difficult times that Joseph had to go through, he learned God's providence. But it was interesting as I sort of prepared things, as we come to what the Lord has sort of prepared on my heart, um, he'd draw me back to sort of develop more about Joseph because there is far more going on. And so if you have your Bible, please open it up to Genesis chapter 39. And this morning we come to a topic that is actually the unseen silent elephant in the room. It's probably a topic that isn't spoken enough of within the church. And that is the topic of the need for sexual purity for God's people. Because you would think when the world looks at a Christian that one of the factors it automatically thinks about is that God's people are sexually pure. But sadly, that is not the fact. God has given to us uh, sex between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage to be the standard and model for man to follow. And that all sex outside of marriage is sin. And sadly enough, as we see within the culture and then it begins to creep into the church, that that's not the case. For sexual impurity is rampant in the high schools, it's rampant in college, it's rampant within marriages, it's rampant in the senior centers, and it's there, and it's all of that is in the church. And that's very sad to say. I remember back in my seminary days, it ne almost never failed that monthly we would hear of another famous pastor Christian notable, Christian author, falling into sin. And it was almost like it was a monthly thing. When I was there, names like Swaggart and Haggart and Baker and Heinsohn and Hawking were falling right and left. And it's interesting because even with recent Christian notables and Christian past, uh, pastors are falling, Glenn and Travidian and even whatever's going on in Falwell's life and family is just a mess. Christian notables and pastors are falling. And it's interesting because there are many more church leaders and pastors that I could mention, but it helps underscore the fact that sexual impurity is rampant. 
Even when a pastor does premarital counseling and you have a, a couple in front of you that want to get married and you begin to ask questions, it's almost there every, every time, except for a few times, is that what's going on in your sex life before marriage? And many people think it's okay. We're going to get married and yeah, there's a gray area and yeah. And so it's very sad to find out that, no, you will never know what God's will is if you're sexually impure. First Lessons 4. We're going to look at that in, in a few moments. Out of all the reading that I did in my seminary days, uh, church historian Philip Schaap, um, Schaft um, sort of stands out. He said this about the sexual sins that were happening during the Middle Ages. He said this, if the gold does rust, what then does the iron do? You may have to think about it for a moment because gold doesn't rust. But if it could rust, if gold could rust, what would a metal that rusts quite easily iron does? If Christian leaders are falling into sin, how much more is it happening in the pew? That's the point. And so the church is filled with the wreckage of lives that are being destroyed due to sexual sin. And so every time I hear of a situation, I keep asking myself, what in the world is going on in the church? To where it's supposed to be so different from the world, but in reality it mimics the world. And it's also sad to say that in every church that I've ever been involved in, I can't say that here because I'm still the new guy and I don't know what's going on, but in every other church that I've been in, because I can only say that I think six more months and then I'm not the new guy anymore. But every other church that I've been in, there's always been something. Deacons, husbands, wives, college students. And it's a sad thing to imagine that that could be happening under one's purview. That is the silent elephant in the room. And though it may not be happening here, it may not be happening in your life, but there will be a time to where someone will succumb to the carnage of sexual impurity and all that it brings. And so we come to a very familiar passage in Genesis chapter 39, because this is a classic story of temptation. It's a story about having victory over temptation. And so we know stories about David and Bathsheba and Samson and Deliah, but this story is sort of different. Because here, not only is a story of victory, but the woman here in the story is the aggressor, which sometimes can happen, and it seems like it's happening more and more within our own society. But how to overcome temptation is very important for us to know. But as you sort of go through the book of Genesis and you get to the life of Joseph, it doesn't answer the question that one of the commentators sort of brought up as I came to this passage, and that's why we're sort of coming back to it, is why is this story here in the book of Genesis? For many times when we come to the stories that we find in the Old Testament, we sort of read them like Aesop's fables. There's a story, there's a moral of the story, and for our lives, we need to sort of be like the moral of the story. And so you can sort of look at the life of David. You know, be like David, strong, courageous, fighting the giants. But then when you look at uh, David's life, which David do you want to be? Like David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba? And so we sort of read those stories to find the morals and sort of pick at things, but it doesn't really get into why those stories are actually in the Bible and why this story is found here. For it is more than just a story that we can glean principles on how to overcome temptation because that's really what we're going to be looking at. But as Joseph's life story unfolds in our eyes, there's a bigger picture going on. 
Because Moses has compiled this book for us, really centering around four events and four people. Creation, fall, flood, nations. Those are the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And then it goes into primarily the lives of four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And so we have those stories there, but why do we have those stories there? Needs to come into our thinking. And throughout this one book, and as we begin to unfold the book of Genesis, when I get the opportunity to sort of come, come here and preach, the book really centers around God's covenant and promises that he makes to his people. And they center around the land, the seed, and the blessing. We see that really develop um, in um, Abraham's life, or Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 12, repeated in chapter 15, and then um, expanded upon throughout the book of Genesis and then, and then elsewhere. That God promises his people, beginning with Abraham, a land, a seed, a descendants, a group of people, a seed, and then blessing, that God will bless his people and that nation would be um, blessing the nations of the world. So in the book, God chooses a man to be the father of a nation to where he would bless his people, put them into the land to where through his people there would be the promised one that would um, crush um, the heel of the serpent that's found in Genesis chapter, or the head of the serpent found, uh, found in Genesis chapter 15. And it is through that seed the nations will be blessed. And so that theme we find throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, to where God promises his people that he establishes a covenant with them, the Abrahamic covenant that God ratifies with himself is unconditional. And so he promises them a land he promised him the promised one, the seed, that there will be a remnant of a, of a people. And then there will be great blessing. And so when you begin to look at this one story, this story sort of needs to have that in mind on why this story is here. For it's more than just sexual temptation. But God, in giving us the life of Joseph has um, his brothers basically reject him, sells him into slavery, and then later on imprisonment for what happens um, in this aspect. But it's more than just God's providential work, though that is one of the main things he's teaching his people. Because he's going to be teaching his people through the life of Joseph that there will be immensely difficult hardships that you're going to go through in bondage in Egypt. But that promised one will still come about. And so through the difficult hard times through Joseph, it, it is there to teach them that God is providentially working even in difficult times. But also, as the book unfolds, there will be that promised seed that will come about through the line of Isaac. And that promised seed will fulfill God's promise that he made with Abraham. And so he has to, through, through Joseph, bring them, bring Joseph into prison, bring him to where he can interpret the dreams from interpreting the dreams be, uh, be noted, be exalted, become second in command to, um, to Pharaoh, to, yeah, to Pharaoh, and then, and then with Pharaoh, bring the nation into Egypt to be protected, to grow, and then God's going to lead them out through the Exodus back into the promised land. And to get there, we have the temptation from, uh, from Potiphar's wife. And so that is why we have the story. It's not, it's not like Moses just drops it in uh, just in case if you happen to stumble into sexual sin. But it's there to show that God, God's providential work is at work in Joseph's life even though it is an unjust situation that Joseph did nothing to bring this about. 
But it's through his imprisonment, not only does Joseph's learning to trust God even more, but also it's to teach Israel that when that bondage comes, that 400 years in which they're in bondage, that they can trust that God is providentially worked to continue to fulfill the promises that he has made, that he will bring them into the land, be a blessing into the nations, and that promised one will come about. That's the book of Genesis. But we'll talk more about that as things unfold because there's some great things that um, will build upon that. But with all that being said, this is a story about Joseph and his temptation. Because we're all going to be faced with that at some point. There will be a time to where one will have to choose whether you're young, middle-aged, old. There will be a time to where you will have to choose. And though this is about sexual temptation, temptation can come and take many different forms. And so though I sort of we're going to be focusing on, on that one area. We are tempted in, in many different areas. And basically, temptation is the enticement to, uh, to evil or to sin. And the temptation, as, as we sort of know, is not sin. Being tempted is, is not the sin. Because our Lord was even tempted at the beginning of his ministry by the evil one. To where he entices the Lord um, by the lust of the eyes and the lust of, of, of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. The same things as what the evil one did with the first couple. Because when you, when you look at when, when they fell in the garden, they centered around those same aspects to where they doubted God and they doubted God's word. And the things were, were, were beautiful and, and so forth. And so the temptation itself is not the sin. The temptation comes when we begin to entertain those impulses. And so many people within within God's church, I got that covered. You know, I don't have a problem with that. But we have to remember the words of Solomon, take heed lest you fall. You, know, you may think you're strong. You may think you got that covered. But you don't know. I don't know. It's going to come. It's going to be there. It could get fed, and it could grow like a tsunami. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7 sort of talks about sin is there crouching at the door. Sort of, sort of like if you ever have a cat. You know, the cat likes to hide. And then it sort of pounces out and try to swatch your ankles as you sort of walk by. Well, that's what sin is like. It's there ready to crouch, ready to pounce. And so sin is always there. But yet at the same time as we begin to look at this, James in chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that we're not being tempted by God. We have the lust of the flesh, we have the world system, and then we have the evil one sort of throwing things, throwing hurdles, giving us um, uh, ways in which we can fall and stumble. We don't necessarily need the evil one. We have the world system skewing the way we think. And then we just have the, just the struggles of the flesh. And so with all those things, it's very easy for anyone to be tempted. But with this story, there is a way out. Because with temptation, there's always an escape that we have. And so let me sort of begin um, reading our story here. Um, beginning at... Beginning with, um, beginning with verse 1, we're going to look at Joseph's life in which he is, has success with Potiphar. Verse 1, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an, an, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And so that begins to give us the background, because the first six verses is the background of the story. But it's interesting, because if you go to chapter 37, in, verse, in, in the last verse of verse 36 of 37, it's almost the same. It, it gives us that Joseph was sold because his brothers wanted to get rid of him, um, sold him in, in Egypt to Potiphar, uh, Pharaoh's officer, captain of the bodyguard. Then you have chapter 38, for some reason, there's this story about Judah 
and Tamar. They're not about Joseph at all, because Joseph's story picks up again in, uh, in chapter 39. But you're going to have to wait to chapter 49 of the book of Genesis to find out why that's there. There is a sharp contrast between Judah's sin and Joseph's temptation to sin. But you're going to have to wait for that one. That's not what we're looking at today. But in, in, uh, in verse 1, we find out that uh, Joseph now is in the uh, slavery, if you would, of Potiphar. He's, in, he's indebted to him to fulfill his master's wishes. And so with Potiphar, we find out very quickly he's captain of the body god for Pharaoh, which means he's wealthy, he has privilege, he has power. He has the ability to carry out the deeds of Pharaoh, very much like the chief of the, the FBI. He's the chief of the military police for Pharaoh. And so by definition, it was a, a position of great prominence, great influence, and he must have been paid very, very well and thus lived in a life of luxury. And so this is where Joseph begins to find himself, where God put him. But look at the beginning of verse 2. We begin to find this about Joseph, about his walk with God and how God was in his life. Verse 2, we find the opening phrase, and the Lord was with Joseph. We find that Joseph, during this time of him being rejected by his family, by him being in slavery, with him probably thinking for the rest of his life that he, he continued to trust in God. Well, how, how do you know that? Well, if he didn't trust God, God would not have been with Joseph. And so this is a statement of Joseph's attitude and actions during this severe time. It shows that he wanted to walk with God. And it's interesting, for us, we, we sort of know that just by instinct. He should have known that anyway. But he didn't have the word. All he had was the information of whatever happened in the first 36 chapters of the book of Genesis. That's all of his um, deep understanding of the word was. He knew that there was a, a God there. He has worked through um, through his ancestors, that God was faithful, that one could believe in God and come to faith, that one needed to have a life in which stood out with the Lord and to walk with him. And so that's where he parked at, that he trusted God and God blessed him for it. And so despite of the ill treatment that he experienced from his brothers, he trusted God, and we find that God and that the Lord was with Joseph. And it's interesting because if you look at the word Lord there, it's all in capitalized, even though in my Bible, the, the L is bigger than the other capital letters. That's the um, word Yahweh. It's God's covenantal name that he, had, that he uses with his people. That Yahweh was with Joseph. It's interesting because in, in elsewhere throughout this book and elsewhere in the Bible, when you see the word God, it's generally the word Elohim. And so um, generally Gentiles are involved and there's a reason why there, um, there's the name change. But when God talks to his people and there's that covenantal aspect about it, we find the word Yahweh. And so the Lord is, is, is telling Joseph and Moses is telling his readers here, that God's covenant, that um, by using his covenantal name, that he was with Joseph. And it's interesting, the word Lord is repeated eight times just in this one chapter. And so whenever you sort of know anything about Hebrew, you need to know that when the Hebrews repeat themselves, it is there for emphasis. And so the Lord is repeated throughout this one passage. Well, you may think, well, that really doesn't matter too much. Well, it's interesting. When you look at the narrative within the book of Genesis, Yahweh isn't repeated within the narrative all that often. I don't want to say it, it's a rarity. It's just not used all that much. And so Moses wants to give us an understanding that as you read this story, Yahweh, God's covenantal name, was with 
Joseph. Don't miss that fact. I'm going to repeat it. Don't miss that. I'm going to repeat it again. And it's another interesting fact that from chapter 40 on, Yahweh isn't really used all that much. And so it's almost like Moses repeats himself so often here about Yahweh and he was with Joseph and made Joseph prosper was that I don't, um, that he's actually telling us that I don't have to repeat myself for you to miss the fact that God was with, Mo- with Joseph, that in his life, he was constantly there. And so Joseph could have complained about his situation, could have gotten bitter about it, could have curled up in in a fetal position and just say, I surrender, I give up, I just want to die. But that didn't happen. God was teaching him the hard lesson through the rejection of his family that I am with you. It's hard. You're away. But remember, I am always with you. Remind me of the words that Isaiah uses to um, describe one of the names of God. Emmanuel. God is what? With us. Emmanuel. God is there. He is with us. And so it reminds me of what even what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 when we go through those dark and hard situations that God wants to remind to us that God is with us, that we're never alone. For Paul says in Philippians 4, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying there, don't be anxious. Why? Because I am with you he will guard our hearts and our minds when we when we bring our prayers before him and acknowledge him there's no reason for us to be anxious and so all of that at the beginning of verse 2 the lord was with joseph but also look at the next part of verse 2 so he became a successful man and he was in the house of his master the egyptian and so he was there, Joseph probably in, in his early 20s, maybe, maybe mid-20s, and he became successful at whatever his master um, gave him a task. And so he proved himself and made the best situation, and God was blessing him. And it's interesting because as we begin to pick up verse, uh, verse 3, he blesses Joseph's efforts but also with, with Potiphar, he was there and Potiphar was the beneficiary of God blessing Joseph and his faithfulness. Look at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord, that Yahweh, was with him. So it was through Joseph's life he began to get an understanding of the God of Joseph, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, before they were a nation, he recognized that there was a God, and Joseph worshipped him, and he saw that the Lord was with him. And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper at his hand. And so the Lord was there working behind the scenes to prosper Joseph, which prospered and benefited Potiphar. It says that in in verse 3, gets repeated in verses 20, um, um, in verse 5, and then later on at the, um, in in verse 23, the Lord prospered Joseph in whatever he did, and those around him benefited by it also. And so the Lord was there working, prospering Joseph, And Potiphar recognized that he was the beneficiary of that. Look at um, verse 5. And it came about 
that from the time he made him overseer in his house. So because of all of Joseph's effort, Potiphar put in charge of his entire household, his probably palace, all of the workings, whether or not it's the kitchen, whether or not the workers, the field hands, everything that his estate sort of encompassed, he made Joseph in charge of it. Over all that he owned, his finances, everything there was, he gave and he put in charge of Joseph. And the Lord blessed the Egyptian household on account of Joseph. And thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house, in the field. Verse 6, so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. Says a great deal about how Joseph considered this Gentile's affairs as if he did it to bring God glory and the Lord uh, worked through it. His faith has made a difference. And out of all the slaves and all the people that Potiphar trusted, his life was the one that stood out. A life of integrity because of his faith. A life of, uh, in which he could put his trust in and not ever doubt. And so Joseph's life did stand out. And it goes back to the faith that he had in the Lord, and the Lord blessed his efforts. So Joseph, many things that are implied here. Joseph worked hard. He had integrity. He didn't do it for himself, but for the benefit of his master. And, Joseph, and God blessed him because of that. So his life rose throughout Potiphar's house, and his reputation in Potiphar's house stood out. And so for Potiphar... Those people are hard to find. You can't find, if you're a business owner, it's hard finding good workers, good employees. People won't steal behind your back. And he put all his trust within Joseph. Didn't have to worry about the theft or mismanagement. It got done, and God multiplied his efforts far beyond what he ever could imagine. And so he gave him more and more. And that's where we find Joseph. And so that's the backstory. And now for the rest of the story, beginning uh, at the end of verse 6, we be begin to see the temptation of Potiphar's wife. And so a look at the end of verse 6. Moses wants us to get an understanding here that now Joseph was, was handsome in form and appearance. When you begin to look at Joseph, he was more than just in, had an ordinary look. His look and in, in appearance stood out. Now we sort of know that from Joseph's life, he was always someone's favorite. He was his father's favorite. He was Potiphar's favorite. He becomes Pharaoh's favorite later on. But now he's going to become Potiphar's wife's favorite because he was pleasant to look at and his appearance stood out. He was one of the, if you call it, though it's superficial, one of the beautiful people. There are just some people who stand out um, in the crowd, like they should be on the cover of GQ magazine. You know, they have the look, the, the athletic look, the muscles, they don't have a tub tub, you know, they, they got, I don't know, blue eyes, I added that in. But they were, they were very pleasant to look at. And those are the people that Madison Avenue tries to sort of uh, put on a pedestal. You should look like them too. And though I'll never get there, but yeah, dress like them, look like them, be with them. And so he stood out. And so when you looked at Joseph, though he was an expert in management and affairs, he was also handsome to look at in form and his appearance. And so with that, that sort of helps underscore the, the reality of that with beauty, it can easily be a snare to entrap people. There's nothing wrong with lo looking nice. But for those who are the beautiful people, it does open doors over than the average-looking people. 
Because even if you remember in the life of Abraham, you know, on two occasions, he, he lies to say, well, don't tell people you're my wife because you're, you're, so, you're, you're so pleasant and they'll probably just kill me to, to have you. And so there is something of a challenge for those here that brings about an additional temptation. But that temptation is there for, for everyone. And so that's Joseph. But look at the elements of the temptation, beginning at verse 7. With this temptation, is just not immediate. It just doesn't explode onto the scene. Because with all temptation, it comes in stages, in, in uh, intensity. The first part, it was a subtle temptation. Verse 7, and it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. Literally there, it says, she lifted her eyes at Joseph. There was some point in Joseph's um, engagement with, with Potiphar, she began to notice him doesn't exactly say the timetable, but it was time in which Joseph rose in the ranks, began to get control uh, through one harvest and maybe another harvest and another harvest to where there is all this bountiful blessing going on. But she began to notice and look at him in a different way. And so after those events, she lifted up her eyes and looked at him with desire and began to say to herself, I want him. Sort of happens in, in dating. I'm sure each one of us who've ever dated and got married, uh, you may not have noticed your future spouse in, in a way, then later on it just sort of, oh, she's, she's there. Um, and then the rest of the story could, could get told. But at some point, she looked at him differently. And then when you begin to look, that look begins to linger. And that linger is, is, is longer than normal. Maybe there was a time they shook hands, uh, and, but it began to grow. And at first, the temptation was quite subtle. And that subtle yields itself to imagination. And so the eyes are the gateway to the souls. And the subtle, subtlety of the temptation began to infiltrate her mind. And so that is why we have to be so careful with what we bring, bring into our gaze. Because even right now, pornography is rampant out in our society. And when you begin to look at those who fall into sexual sin... It gets fed long before it ever takes hold with the reality. Because now you don't have to go to a movie theater to feed that. It's right there on your computer with one click of a button. And boom, it, it's there. So the imagination goes to feed the lust to create the powerful desires that can overcome one thinking. It's almost like with a child's song. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down with love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And so she began to look. She began to desire. It was all subtle, but at the last part of verse 7, it began to take a more direct approach. Her eyes ensnared her heart. She loses the ability to see the wrong in the situation. Whatever began to begin with just common niceness turned into flirting, and that flirting began to grow. That lust moves from imagination and begins to break out into action. Look what, uh, at the last part of verse 7. It says, and she said, lie with me didn't happen all, all at once, but she got to the point where she was very vocal about it. Come, be with me. She greatly desired him. And come, be with me. Her 
proposition had many privileges. Not only could he have enjoyed being with her, but also she could give him her husband's word that things would be fine. And so Joseph had had a choice to make when the proposition was made. Be with a a beautiful woman, spend time with her, or not to. What do I do? He had a choice to make. And at the heart of every temptation, the choice is always there. What should I do? What are the consequences if I give in? And so the proposal, will you, is almost more like a command, lie with me. And he has a response to her temptation that we find in verses 8 and 9. First of all, in verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9, he appeals to her reason. Look at verse 8. But he refused. So he immediately had a response. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all he owns in my charge. There is no greater in this house than I. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. One of the things that um, it's interesting that one of the commentators make, and I probably shouldn't mention before, with Potiphar's wife, Moses doesn't even give her the dignity of giving her a name. She's just Potiphar's wife. Because there are a lot of times we actually have the name of the people involved. Here, she's a part of his wife. But here we also find he appeals to her reason. I can't do this. He has left me in charge of everything except to be with you. It, it would be wrong. I'm single. You're married. We can't succumb to those desires. And so he appeals to her reason. It, it can't be done. I, I can't. I just can't do it to Potiphar. You are his wife. But then at the last part of verse 9, he appealed to her conscience. Look look, look what we find. We, We find that how then could I do this great evil and sin against Elohim? It's interesting. He changes the word there. Because now Potiphar is and his wife are sort of in the picture. It was frowned upon in Egyptian culture to be sleeping with other people's wife. The penalty of that would be death. There is a right and wrong that was was known. And she had no place um, in that culture and in his thinking to offend God. But with her, the concept of offending God didn't stop her in the thinking. You know, I can't do this. It's going to offend God. And so um, he appeals He appeals to her, her conscience and how it is wrong. It's just can't be dabbled with. It's just wrong. You can say that when, in his understanding, he drew a line in the sand. I cannot go beyond that. You can say that he was resolved. I love that word. You may not know that word, but he was resolved. It's interesting because um, when I uh, studied the the life of uh, Jonathan Edwards, early in his ministry, he came up with 70 resolutions. And normally when we think of a resolution, we think of New Year's revolutions. These are the the five things I want to do this year. Almost like a wishful thinking list. I want to lose 15 pounds. I fell there, but that's okay. I'm going to give up chocolate. That lasts about a day. um, But for him, it centers around the word resolve. And he had 70 things that shaped his life, if you would. That these 70 things were primary in his life, and to his best of his ability, he would fulfill them. And each one of those 70 things began with the word resolved. I am committed. 
I, am, I have a predetermined re response to these things. Let me just give you one of them. In number four, he says, resolved never to do anything, whether physically or spiritually, except what glorifies God. In fact, I resolve not only to, um, to his commitment, but I resolve not even to grieve or to gripe about these things if I can't avoid it. So he was resolved to, to do things that only glorified God. That was a line in the sand that was drawn for him. He had a predetermined response that if something were to come up, no, it not happening. That's why I, I like that word. He was resolved. But, and Joseph had this same aspect within his thinking. That is something that I cannot do. But if you look at his life, nobody would know. Who would know? His family wouldn't know. People around him wouldn't know. Uh, nobody, nobody would know except God. God knows. God's there. God knows. You can't get around certain aspects. And so for each one of us, we need to know what areas we're resolved in, where the lines are drawn. To be, if you don't know where those are, or if you entertain, you know, walking on the fence and make sure I'm going to walk on that line and you may fall over that line. I remember when I was in China, they told me, uh, I was in China to uh, pick, uh, pick up our children twice. And they, they told me, especially when I went there by myself to, to, to pick up Alex, it was like... Um, they told me, don't answer the door at night if somebody knocks. Oh, why? They're going to rob me? No. The hotel people, they will send ladies of the night to your room. So don't answer the door. The, uh, if, if they want something, they will call the room. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Not that it happened, but it's good to know. One has to be resolved to do certain things. Whether or not it's entertaining sexual thoughts, you gotta be resolved. I'm just not gonna do it. One has to be predetermined ahead of time that one's just not gonna be with another woman. I like it how with uh, Mike Pence, he has the Billy Graham rule um, that's vocal for everyone to know to where he says, I will not or ever be with a woman by myself, whether or not that's at a restaurant or anything else, because Billy Graham started that. And I think it's a great rule. And so he, there's a predetermined, I'm just never going to do, to do that. And so Joseph was resolved. But that didn't stop things, because look at verse, verse 10. It goes from a direct temptation to a repeated temptation she could not take no for an answer verse 10 as she spoke to joseph day after day he did not listen to her to uh, to lie beside her or be with her her approach now is constant and sustained it appears that joseph's refuse, re refusal just made him more desirable and so she had to be just trying to get victory with Joseph in this one area. And so we don't have the time frame here. This is day after day. Could have been a week. Could have been a month. Could have been six months of day after day after day. We don't know, but it's long enough to where uh, we find day after day. But he does not give in. And so she is hoping that she would wear him down. That he's a man. That's what men do. Just sooner or later, he's going to give in. Joseph, let's go. Joseph, I need you. Joseph, aren't you lonely? Be with me. 
Just spend time with me. But as soon, it's interesting, at the end of verse 10, he wasn't even with her. I, I, I imagine she would walk into a room and he's going out the back door. Just pew. And so um, he, just, he just sort of tried to stay clear. And so for him, it was no way. And for her, it was next time I'll get him. But then it turns from this repeated aspect to where she, she needs to get completion. The temptation now becomes a strategic temptation. Look at verse um, 11. Now it happened one day. So she's going to set up all the dominoes in the right way to get this done. It happened one day that he went to the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was inside. And so everybody was gone. It was just him and just her. That's it. Now truly, there are no eyes to see. No one can say anything. It's just you and me, Joseph. Joseph. Nobody will know. There's nobody here in the house. But Joseph knew that God knows. Jeremiah 16 in verse 17 to where Jeremiah tells a disobedient Israel this that for all their sins, that for my, and the Lord is speaking, for my eyes are on their ways. They're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquities concealed before my eyes. God knows. One doesn't get away with anything. Man may not see, but God sees. Who do you want to know more? The people in the public to know what happened? Or God who's who's out there and he sees everything. And so now she moves into the kill in verse 12. No one around and she moves into the kill and she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. She enters Joseph's personal space and that is where most people were, would succumb. He can smell her perfume. He's up close and personal. He can see the richness of her eyes. She can, he can see her, how alluring she is. She's ripe for the taking. Joseph, I am here. Go to town. And what happens? Look at the next part of the verse. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He rejects her. He flees. He doesn't even uh, take his garment. She grabs him. All she, all she grabbed was the garment, and he goes outside, and she's stuck with the garment in her hand being rejected. And now in verses 19 through 23, we see the response to her rejection. It's sad. It's unjust to Joseph, but yet she does it. You've heard the old saying that rings true here. Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turn, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. And she scorned, and she's going to get even with Joseph for rejecting her. Her heart is filled with anger. And she goes to her husband in verse 19. And now when his husband heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. And so his first response is, how could Joseph do this to me? And so he is just angry. I've given you everything, Joseph, and you stabbed me in the back? A too, Brute? Oh, he could not, he was the last person who would ever, ever imagine who would try to do something. Because of who he was, the character that he had in his walk with his God. God. And what results in this, in verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. He was placed with 
the national prisoners of Egypt, criminals to the crown. And he was there. Not only was it prison, it was probably the worst of prison because if you do something to the crown, it's not a good place. And so that is where Potiphar puts him. And it's interesting because normally within Egyptian culture and also within, within the Old Testament, there was this aspect, you, you sexually sin, you are put to death. And in some realities, in my mind, why was his sentence so light? Because he really should have been put to death. It's went off. You want, you're going after my wife? Off with your head. Because he wants to uh, make a pattern for everyone else. Someone else goes after my wife is going to be off with your head too. But I think he realized that maybe deep down, this wasn't the first time that it happened. Or maybe deep down he really didn't trust his wife. But he ultimately knew that God blessed his entire household and he was indebted to Joseph for his God's kindness and blessing. He was angry. He was angry because he had to find somebody else to do all the work. Now he had to hire four people to do the one job, but he was angry. And he's in prison. And look at his imprisonment in verse 21. Verse 21 begins by giving us a contrast. But, I love the buts of scripture. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. But the Lord was with Joseph. Wrongfully imprisoned. Nothing that he has done. He actually tried to preserve the integrity of himself and Potiphar his master, but the Lord was with Joseph in extended kindness to him, gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and did whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Once again, we're not given the time period, but it's not something that automatically happened. You have to prove yourself. These are prisoners. These are prisoners to the crown. They're not trusted by definition. But even with the chief jailer, he knew something was different in Joseph's life. His walk with the Lord prospered things. There was something different with his God and how he worshiped that God. And he put him in charge of all the prisoners to where he made his job easy. I don't have to worry about anything. Just show up and it, it'll be done. And so that is the beginning of Joseph being in jail for God to use him to interpret a set of dreams, be forgotten and interpret another set of dreams and then be exalted to second in command in Egypt. So God had to place him in prison to begin to protect the, the, the line of the seed that would come. But that's chapter 49. You're going to have to wait. But as we come to application, the question is, there are ways that we can look at Joseph's life and instill within our, in our own life how to stop temptation. Because it is there, crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And that's what just sin does. Through our flesh, through the world system, and through the evil one. It's almost like a no-win situation, but we can't win it. First of all, we need to stop temptation by knowing what God, God's word says. I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for a moment. Go there, if, if you would. We have to know what God's, God's word says. And it says a lot. This is just one story. There are lots of other stories about what sexual temptation is. But we need to be reminded of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because many times we say, I want to know what God's will is. Well, this is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 3. For this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? It's your sanctification. God wants your life to be holy, set apart, and 
he's going to begin to elaborate on some things, but one thing that uh, Paul focuses on is sexual immorality. God wants you to be holy, as we saw in 1 Peter, for I am holy, is what, what Peter tells. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lustful passion like the Gentiles do who do not know God. And that no man's trespass and defraud his brother in the manner because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we have told you before and soundly warn you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but for sanctification. Paul says, don't act like those Gentiles. <laughs> They're, that's just what they do. You expect impurity from them. They just do their thing. You should not have that. It's God's will for you to be holy. So you take that and you get resolved and you draw a line in the sand. Got it. Secondly, 2 Timothy 2, in verse, in verse 22, we read it this morning. And it says, now flee youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's always a back door to temptation. And like Joseph, the easiest back door was, I'm out of here. I'm gone. And so flee youthful lust. When temptation comes, we know what God's word says. We remind ourselves what God's word says, that there's a line in the sand. I'm not and resolved not to go over that line. We flee. But then thirdly, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 3. I want you to see this verse. Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells, tells the church of Colossae to take off certain things and put on other things. But in Colossians chapter 3, I want you to look at verse 5. We find that slippery slope to sexual sin, if you would, being brought out here. In verse 5, Paul writes, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Literally there, that word dead means put to death. And so put to death or kill anything that may cause you to stumble. Immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. There's a slippery slope there. It begins with, with, um, with evil thoughts, which is idolatry. You focus on yourself, which goes to greed, which goes to evil desire, which goes to passion, it goes to impurity, and goes to the outward act of immorality. There it is. And so when you see those things, Paul says, put to death, or Tim's... Uh, trans, uh, trans, uh, uh, translation, kill it. There's an emphasis there. Put to death, kill it. You see it, you kill it. Don't get on that slippery slope. Verse 6, for it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So for unbelievers, there's the wrath of God uh, will get poured upon them because of their Im, uh, impurity. But look at verse 7, in, in, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. You used to be that way. Don't be that way in, anymore. And how do you be uh, not that way? By killing those things when, when they come to the surface. You purge yourself of any area of compromise, whether or not it's through the internet or the rating of the movies that you sort of watch. Our movies, they're almost not worth it. Um, especially when I go on the internet and I see so-called Christians, they're talking about, hey, have you seen the last episode of the Game of Thrones? I was like, no, 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 no I didn't. No, no, that's just soft porn. No, I don't care how good the story is. It, there's a line in the sand. No, not going there. Just I don't care how good the story is. It's not, you can't go there. One has to be resolved on where those lines in the sand are. And there's a number four that's not on the list because I added it this morning, is we need to remember, fourthly, the world is watching. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 14, let me read this for you. You are the light of the world, a city 
set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before a man in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When the world looks at the church, they should see the church as one in which those guys, they don't succumb to it. But instead, they turn on the evening news and they see the gold rusting. And they ask, what then does the iron do? Let's pray. Father, this is a hard topic. I have to admit, to prepare for this, it's not easy. I like the easy topics. But there is just sometimes there's a silent elephant in the room because it's there. It's there in high school, in college, in a single ministry, a married ministry, the senior ministry. It's, it's just there. And Father, let us be known for the walk that we have with you, that we're resolved to bring you all the glory and honor through every aspect of our life. And so, Father, bring that about so we can please you with all that we say and do. And we pray this in Jesus' name.